Chapter Two, Part One of Bacteria in Daily Life by Grace Coleridge Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What we breathe. Few people realize that, with the advent of autumn, the great majority of the swarms of bacteria which have been circulating in the air during the hot summer months take their leave of us and disappear. Practically, however, we are all conscious of this fact, for we know what greater difficulties attend the keeping of food sweet and wholesome in the summer than are met with in the winter. Bacteria, not unlike some other armies of occupation, securing a footing rather by their numbers at this season of the year, than by virtue of the superior strategy or, in other words, special attributes of their units. Bacterial operations are, however, distinctly favored by the accident of temperature, the warmth of the summer encouraging their vitality and multiplication. When Pasteur first announced his conviction that the familiar phenomena of putrefaction and decay were due to minute living particles present in our surroundings, his skeptical critics sought to ridicule his conclusions by declaring that, were this the case, the air must of necessity be so heavily laden with living forms that we should be surrounded by a thick fog, dense comme de fer. We do not now, forty years later, require to recite the exquisitely simple experiments which, whilst sufficiently establishing his theories, served to effectually suppress those of his opponents. Since Pasteur's pioneering work was carried out, a vast number of investigations have been made in all parts of the world by scientists of almost every nationality on the subject of the distribution of bacteria in air, and not only on their distribution, but on their functions or the place they occupy in the economy of nature. With our increased knowledge concerning their distribution has come our ability to differentiate between individuals, and to adequately assess the value and importance of their work from various points of view. In the bacterial treatment of sewage, we have not only one of the latest, but perhaps also one of the most successful examples of that system of division of labor, or specialization of energy, which forms such a characteristic feature of work of all kinds at the present time. Other familiar instances of the applications of individual and special bacterial laborers to the solution of industrial problems are to be found in the conduct of commercial undertakings of such national magnitude and importance as brewing and agriculture. But it is not with these beneficent or great industrial classes of bacteria that we are now more immediately concerned, but rather with the malevolent varieties, or the so-called submerged tenth, for which no labor colony has at present been created to direct their energies into useful and profitable channels. We know that as regards mere numbers, the bacteria in air may vary from zero to millions in a couple of gallons, these extremes being dependent upon the surrounding conditions or relative purity of the atmosphere. Out at sea, beyond the reach of land breezes, it is no uncommon thing to find none whatever. On mountains and even hills of humble elevation, the paucity of bacteria is very marked if there are no abnormal or untoward circumstances contributing to their distribution. An illustration of this, the recent investigations of the air on the summit of Mont Blanc by Monsieur Jean Binot are of special interest, inasmuch as the altitude at which they were carried out is the highest at which the search after bacteria has so far been pursued. This intrepid investigator spent no less than five days in the observatory, which is situated on the top of the mountain. As was to be anticipated, frequently no bacteria at all were found, 
and it was only when such comparatively large volumes of air as one thousand litres about two hundred gallons were explored that microbes in numbers varying from four to eleven were discovered the air of the country is far freer from microbial life than that of cities whilst open spaces such as those afforded by the london parks are paradises of purity compared with the streets and their attendant bacterial slums that it is no exaggeration to describe streets from the bacterial point of view as slums is to be gathered from the fact that much less than a thimbleful of that dust which is associated with the blustering days of march and the scorching pavements of summer may contain from nine hundred to one hundred and sixty millions of bacteria but investigators have not been content to merely quantitatively examine street dust in addition to estimating the numerical strength of these bacterial dust battalions the individual characteristics of their units have been exhaustively studied and the capacity for work beneficent or otherwise possessed by them has been carefully recorded the qualitative discrimination of the bacteria present in dust has resulted in the discovery of amongst other disease germs the consumption bacillus the lockjaw or tetanus bacillus bacteria associated with diphtheria typhoid fever pulmonary affections and various septic processes such is the appetizing menu which dust furnishes for our delectation there can be no doubt therefore that dust forms a very important distributing agent for microorganisms dust particles aided by the wind being to bacteria what the modern motor car with its benzene or electric current is to the ambitious itinerant of the present day attached to dust bacteria get transmitted with the greatest facility from place to place and hence the significance of their presence in dust mention has been made of the fact that the germs of typhoid fever have been discovered in dust and the belief in the possibility of this disease being spread by dust is gaining ground an interesting case in point is afforded by an outbreak of typhoid fever which occurred in athens a few years ago and in which the starting point or nucleus was discovered to be a group of laborers who were engaged upon excavating the soil in a street through which a sewer had once been taken the epidemic subsequently spread to those districts of the city swept by the prevailing wind which passed over the place where the soil had been turned up and exposed m bombard who brought his observations before the international congress of hygiene at budapest was convinced from the inquiries he made that this outbreak of typhoid was due to the disturbance of the soil and the dissemination by means of the wind of typhoid dust particles to certain parts of the city that this hypothesis is by no means without experimental justification is shown by the properties possessed by the typhoid bacillus in regard to its vitality in soil which have been discovered thus numerous investigators have studied the important question of the behavior of this microorganism in soil and have found that it can exist over periods extending from three to twelve or more months in the ground this property of the typhoid bacillus may possibly explain the appearance over and over again of typhoid fever in particular localities suggesting that the bacteria had become indigenous in the soil dr Mugius of heligoland describes an epidemic of typhoid fever in the island concerning which he made a most searching and elaborate inquiry it appears that a case of typhoid occurred and was concealed from the medical authorities so that no steps for disinfection could be taken in the first instance and following the primitive custom which prevails on the island the dejecta was thrown over and upon the cliffs this being the usual method of disposing of sewage 
ample opportunity was thus given for its desiccation and subsequent distribution as dust that this typhoidal material did subsequently become pulverized and spread the infection dr Mewius has no doubt the germs having been conveyed to the open rainwater cisterns which constitute the water supply of the majority of the inhabitants his theory is again supported by the coincidence between the prevailing direction of the wind and the quarter where the outbreak occurred that diphtheria germs can remain for a long time in a living and what is more virulent condition in dust has been clearly demonstrated by germano amongst other investigators this organism being specially endowed with the capacity for resisting the to other microbes lethal effect of getting dried up bacteria however survive this desiccation process much better when they are herded together in large numbers than when they have to face such untoward conditions as isolated individuals this has been well illustrated in the case of diphtheria bacilli and the difference in their powers of endurance under these respective conditions is very striking thus when a few only are exposed to a very dry atmosphere on silken threads they disappear after eight days but when somewhat larger numbers were taken they contrived to exist for eighteen days whilst when great multitudes of them were herded together even one hundred and forty days starvation in these desert-like surroundings could not entirely stamp out their vitality this dangerous property possessed by the germs of diphtheria should if possible increase the vigilance with which the outbreaks of this disease are watched and dealt with abel cites an instance in which a wooden toy in the sick-room of a child suffering from diphtheria was found six months later to have virulent diphtheria bacilli upon it this reminds me of a case in which tetanus or lockjaw ensued from the use of some old cobwebs in stopping the bleeding of a cut the wound was a perfectly clean one and nothing need have resulted from this obedience to a superstitious prejudice had not the cobwebs unfortunately arrested some tetanus germs and these getting access to the wound set up the typical symptoms of lockjaw that this implication of the cobweb was no idle accusation was subsequently proved by portions of the same web on being inoculated into animals inducing in the latter well-defined symptoms of tetanus that cobwebs readily catch dust is familiar to everyone who has the mortification of seeing them adorn the ceilings and corners that they also arrest bacteria follows as a natural consequence of the presence of dust and hence these delicate filaments may become veritable bacterial storehouses more especially as it is usually in the dark and remote corners that they best succeed in eluding the vigilance of the domestic eye and are thus also out of reach of the lethal action of sunbeams and hence their unwelcome lodgers may manage to maintain a comfortable existence over long periods of time that the bacillus of consumption should have been very frequently found in dust by different investigators is hardly surprising when it is realized that the sputum of phthisical persons may contain the tubercle germ in large numbers and that until recently no efforts have been made in this country to suppress that highly objectionable and most reprehensible practice of indiscriminate expectoration considering the certified deaths from phthisis in 1901 in england and wales only reached the enormous total of forty two thousand four hundred and eight and bearing in mind the hardy character of the bacillus tuberculosis when present in sputum it having been found alive in the latter even when kept in a dry condition after ten months it is not too much to demand that vigorous measures should be taken by the legislature to cope with what is now regarded as one of the most fruitful means of spreading consumption 
we know that in some states of america public opinion has permitted the enactment of laws penalizing this practice local laws to the same effect exist in our australian colonies on the continent the trend of public opinion is evident by the prohibition found in the railway carriages and the notices to that effect conspicuously posted in public places in this country public opinion moves so slowly that we are not yet ripe for any such strong step and so far one of the few attempts at official activity in this respect is to be found in a circular issued by the local government board of ireland to the various local authorities stating that tuberculosis sputum is the main agent for the conveyance of the virus of tuberculosis from man to man and that indiscriminate spitting should therefore be suppressed the public exhibition of notices calling attention to the danger accruing from expectoration in public resorts is as already pointed out one means of educating the people and it has been stated that such a notice is posted in every beer-house in manchester the question has also been raised of the inspection of beer-houses and the suggestion made that licenses should be withdrawn in the case of those holders who did not wash the floors of their public rooms and keep them in a sanitary state at the present time in this country it is perhaps more to the private conscience of the individual and the pressure of public opinion than to penal enactments that we must look for effective reform in this direction for the objection of the english to official sanitary control is deeply rooted it is to be hoped however that with the spread and popularization of the knowledge acquired through the arduous labors of so many scientific authorities it may come to be regarded as a matter for both public and private morality that every step should be taken which lies in the power of each member of society to minimize the opportunities for the spread of a disease which by its very familiarity we have until the last few years accepted as incurable and the ravages of which as inevitable since the above was written the first international conference of the central committee for the prevention of consumption has been held in berlin the official report of the english national association for the prevention of tuberculosis was presented to the congress and the encouraging announcement was made that the corporations of glasgow manchester and liverpool had made expectoration in tramcars a punishable offence and that the glamorganshire county council had passed a by-law providing as penalty for expectoration in public buildings a fine of five pounds which enactment has been sanctioned by the secretary for the home department now that we are considering the status of street dust in bacterial circles it will not perhaps be out of place to inquire into the character of another waste product of streets that is the discarded ends of cigars and cigarettes that what is carelessly tossed away on the one hand may be as carefully collected on the other is well known as is also the fact that such material may subsequently be raised once more to the dignity of a marketable commodity under these circumstances it is of hygienic interest and importance to ascertain whether disease germs should they have obtained access to this tobacco refuse are in a virulent or quiescent condition some experiments to decide this question in connection with the tuberculosis bacillus have been recently carried out in padua by dr Pacerico, who whilst extending our knowledge on the subject of bacteria and tobacco has also confirmed the earlier results obtained by Carez. portions of cigar stumps smoked by physical persons in whose saliva the tubercle bacillus was known to be abundantly present were inoculated into guinea pigs with the result that fifty per cent of the animals thus treated succumbed to tuberculosis thus neither the fumes nor juice of the tobacco had destroyed the consumption bacillus
In these experiments, the cigar ends were used directly they were discarded. In another series of investigations, they were collected and kept in a dry place for from 15 to 20 days before being tested. But even storage for this length of time did not prevent the animals inoculated with them from contracting tuberculosis. In another series of experiments, Dr. Pesarico kept the infected cigar ends in damp surroundings, and it was satisfactory to find that under these conditions the tubercle bacillus at the end of ten days was entirely deprived of its virulence. Encouraged by these results, inoculations were made with cigar ends which had been left in the open and exposed to normal atmospheric conditions, which included falls of rain and snow, and in this case also no symptoms of tuberculosis followed their introduction into the guinea pigs. These experiments show that the tubercule bacillus is prejudicially affected by contact with tobacco when the latter is kept in a moist condition, but that in a dry condition the properties in tobacco inimical to its vitality are not liberated, and the bacillus can retain its virulent properties for a period of over twenty days. In view of the importance of this discovery on the destruction of the toxic character of the tubercule bacillus by contact with moist tobacco, further experiments were made in which emulsions of tobacco were infected with tuberculosis sputum. It was found that the bacilli steadily declined in virulence as the length of time they were kept in the emulsion was prolonged. Thus, whereas after a few hours they were still armed with all their virulent properties, after three days, out of the four animals inoculated with the emulsion, three succumbed to tuberculosis. After five days, two out of four succumbed whilst after eight days only one animal out of the four was infected, and after a period of ten days' immersion in the tobacco emulsion, the tubercule bacillus failed to kill a single animal. Cigar and cigarette ends were collected from the streets and cafes of Padua by Pesarico, but in spite of consumption being stated to be very prevalent in this city, in no single case could the presence of the tubercule bacillus be discovered, although, as in the other investigations, the surest method for its detection that is, animal inoculations, was employed. Brief reference may be made also to the experiments conducted to ascertain if cigars and cigarettes as sold contain tubercule bacillus. The more interest attaches to this investigation because it is well known that the operators employed in tobacco factories are, as a rule, an unhealthy class, diseases of the respiratory organs, and especially tuberculosis, being very prevalent amongst them. A German official report on this subject states that the average duration of life of such factory hands only reaches 38 years. Doubtless, the lightness of the occupation encourages many to seek employment in these factories whose state of health would debar them from obtaining work under more trying circumstances. Some of the conditions under which cigars and cigarettes are made, such as the workers using their saliva to facilitate the rolling of them and fixing of the leaves, and the testing of the drawing properties of a cigar by placing it in the mouth, with the facilities offered for the dissemination of dried tuberculosis sputum as dust, contribute to make it highly probable that tobacco as it leaves the factory may contain the germs of consumption. Before leaving the subject of tobacco and disease germs, it may be of interest to inquire what justification in fact there is for the practice adopted by anxious mothers when travelling in times of epidemics of zymotic disease, of thrusting themselves and their children into the sanctum of the other sex, the smoking compartment of a railway carriage. I have frequently seen this done, despite the voluble protests of its legitimate occupants. Tassinari has made some very interesting experiments on the effect of tobacco smoke 
on the vitality of various descriptions of disease germs. He constructed an apparatus in which he suspended pieces of linen soaked in broth infected with the particular microorganism to be tested. Tobacco smoke was then admitted, and the microbes were retained in this stifling atmosphere for half an hour. In these surroundings, cholera and typhoid germs were destroyed, and other bacteria, such as the anthrax bacillus and the pneumonia bacillus, were so prejudicially affected that when subsequently transferred to their normal surroundings, it was only with extreme difficulty that they could be revived. When, however, the tobacco smoke was made to pass through water, before reaching the bacteria, its pernicious influence was entirely removed, and the latter suffered no detriment. Hence the practice, so often seen in the East, of passing tobacco smoke through rose or other perfumed water before inhaling it, whilst doubtless rendering it less noxious to the smoker, deprives the exhaled tobacco fumes of all their bactericidal or disinfecting properties. To return, however, after this somewhat lengthy digression, to the question of dust and its bacterial properties, we have learnt enough to enable us to realise that the movement for the migration of the working classes from crowded streets to rural districts, in which Mr. George Cadbury has played so practical and important a part in the creation of his model village, with its gardens and open spaces, some five miles from the city of Birmingham, is, if only bacterially considered, a very real barrier against the dissemination of disease. For the denser the population, the greater will be the crowd of bacteria, and the greater the chance of pathogenic varieties being present amongst them. Again, we know that sunshine is one of the most potent germicides with which nature has provided us. See Sunshine and Life and it requires no effort of the imagination to realize how, in the gloomy back courts and crowded tenements of our great smoke-laden cities, bacteria succeed in obtaining a firm hold on their surroundings, and, in the shape of spores, attaining an undesirable and hoary old age, in which they are in some cases almost indestructible. Fraulein Dr. E. Concornati has shown that this is no figment of fancy only, for she has recently made a special and very elaborate study of the distribution of pathogenic or disease bacteria in air, searching for them in the most varied surroundings, such as prisons, schools, casual wards, etc., with the result that, out of 46 experiments in which the character of the bacteria found was tested by inoculation into animals, 32 yielded organisms which were pathogenic. Dr. Concrenati concludes her valuable memoir by stating that her investigations proved conclusively that the dirtier or more slum-like the surroundings, the greater was the frequency with which she found bacteria associated with disease in the air. Messrs. Valenti and Terrari Lelli have quite recently been able fully to endorse these statements in the results they have obtained in their systematic study of the bacterial contents of the air in the city of Medina. In their report they state that the narrower and more crowded the streets, the greater was the number of bacteria present in the air and the more frequently did they meet with varieties associated with septic disease. Numerous detailed investigations have also been made of the bacterial contents of the dust in hospitals. That cases of infection arising within hospital precincts are of no uncommon occurrence may be gathered from the observations made by Lutand and Hogg, who report no fewer than 2,294 such cases having arisen in the space of six years in certain Paris hospitals, while Sologiu records 1,880 cases as occurring in the space of four and a half months in the St. Petersburg City Hospital. 
Solojou made a special study of the bacterial contents of dust collected in hospitals and states that 41.8% of the samples examined contained disease germs. The degree of infection possessed by dust in such surroundings must, of course, depend upon the degree of cleanliness which characterizes the management of any particular institution, and such investigations as the above can only help to emphasize the immense importance of common cleanliness and the reasonableness of taking every precaution possible in the disinfection of utensils, etc. End of Part 1 of Chapter 2